Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Matthew Epinet, Interim Director of the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, I interview Mario Taffiner, who served CBHD as the Robert D. Orr Fellow in 2018 and 2019. Mario came to Trinity and CBHD from his home country of Germany, and I sat down to interview him shortly before he and his family moved to the Netherlands, where he is now teaching Old Testament language and literature at Tyndale Theological Seminary. The Robert Orr Endowed Fellowship supports a Ph.D. student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School who is committed to exploring the implications of biblical and theological perspectives for engaging medicine and technology. In a future episode of the podcast, I'll be interviewing the current Orr Fellow. But for now, here's my interview with Mario Taffiner, 2018-2019 Orr Fellow. So I'm here with Mario. You've been here for a year and a half as the Orr Fellow. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, how you came to be here at Trinity, how you came to be here at CBHD. Yes, so I'm actually from Germany. I came to Trinity four and a half years ago to study in the PhD program in Old Testament studies. When I came, I already had an MA in Semitics and Ancient Eastern Studies from the University of Marburg in Germany. And I also have what would count here as an, an equivalent of an MDiv from a, from a German seminary. I came to Trinity specifically because I wanted to study with Dr. Younger on matters related to historiography and uh, the Old Testament. So this is really kind of my my background. Uh, My research interests really lie in Semitic languages and how they relate to Hebrew, but also the texts from the Old Testament backgrounds and how they can help us understand the Old Testament better. And so did you come in, I mean, coming from that, it doesn't sound like a real natural fit with bioethics. Did you come in with some exposure to bioethics already, or was it kind of new territory for you when you got to to Trinity? Yeah, really, besides it being mentioned very few times in the seminary, I, I didn't have any exposure to bioethics before I came to Trinity. So how it came to be that I ended up as the Orr Fellow at CBHD really was... Um, part of the PhD program at TETS is that students have to attend colloquia. And CBHD offers a colloquium each semester where we do a, a bioethics roundtable book discussion. So um, students read a book and then we meet and discuss it um, with other PhD students and also staff of CBHD is there to discuss the book. So one of the books they did uh, almost two years ago was a book called God's Good World. It was in the Doctrine of Creation. And uh, I, I participated in that colloquium. So the, the person who wrote the book, what was really interesting was he, uh, in one of his chapters, he compared the Genesis creation story to the uh, Babylonian creation story in Numa Elish and kind of showed how they almost envisioned two different kinds of worlds, right? Two different structures of the world and how these things lay out completely different understandings of how people should behave in the world and what it means to be human, what what it means to to do what the gods want you to do, basically. And given my own background, it really resonated with me. And Michael Cox who was the or fellow before me. He also then invited me to apply for the position, which became vacant just shortly after this uh, mentioned colloquium. And uh, that's how I ended up as the or fellow. And that's really how my bioethical thinking started, really, only really after I started to work here. And so then walk me through that, I guess, first several months where you're being really introduced to the whole spectrum of bioethics issues. 
what of those, how did that go? And then what of those issues really resonated with you or stood out as something that captured your interest? So one of the things that when I started the application process, one of the things that really resonated with me right from the beginning was all of this, this entire area of end of life issues. Being from Germany, and now we're also going to the Netherlands, where I'm going to serve after I'm after I'm done here. Actually, next week, I'm going <laughs> to leave America to live in the Netherlands. Um, that's a big issue. Like the Netherlands, also Belgium, um, have very, very loose and liberal euthanasia laws. So I knew that this was coming. Um, it was a discussion in Germany as well as it is here in the United States. And that really resonated with me. That's something I thought that would be good to explore more. So that's one, one of one, an interest I came with when I first applied. Now, when I started at the center, what happened was that they really wanted me to spend the first month just reading. So I just sat down and just my entire work time I was here, I just read on bioethics, um, several different books. And then uh, through that, there was much more insight. And I was able to narrow it down much more on what I was interested in. So the, the things I really became interested in was... In this area of end-of-life issues, I was I became really interested in this whole idea about the Christian art of dying. So rather than just opposing a wrong way of dying, namely um, euthanasia, what is the alternative to that? Because it, it appeared to me that euthanasia and the Christian art of dying seem to do the same thing, right? They want to comfort those who die, but in totally opposite ways. Then uh, another part, another thing that I became very interested in, which was already part of my experience at the colloquium, was this whole issue of what does the Old Testament tell us about what the world is like and how we as humans should behave in the world and what does that mean for bioethics, right? So this is really um, how my thinking on bioethics started at the center. And these right, like the two topics that crystallized themselves out as the things that I invested my research time in. And so looking at the position of Orfellow, what does that work entail? What did it look like on a kind of day-to-day or month-by-month basis? What sorts of things were you, were you doing? Most of my time really was editing work. So the center has two publications that we publish on a regular basis. The one would be Dignitas, which is a print publication. It comes out four times a year. It contains two articles, um, scholarly articles. And I edited that, which took a lot of time. You need to solicit articles, wait for emails, <laughs> write more emails. And once you get the articles, then you edit them. So uh, that's what I did. That's what I spent most of my time on. But then also in Intersections, which is kind of our online, it's somewhat in between like an online publication and a blog. I couldn't really say. We called a forum, but it's great. And I edited it too. It took a little bit less time than Dignitas. Yeah, on Intersections, what we are doing more was um, we bring out articles that were more church focused or focus towards uh, the needs of that the pastors might have or people that are sitting in the pew might have. So less of a scholarly interaction with bioethics. And we also never really called it a bioethics blog. It really was on the nexus of medicine and technology and the Christian worldview and how that all relates in this very turbulent time that we live in. So this really occupied most of my time at the center, these, these research, uh, these uh, editing activities. Other things were obviously things that just happened, just like, the, for example, the summer conference, being invested in that for some time, um, other projects that come up, things like that. Since you jumped into bioethics from Old Testament studies, Near East studies, where do you see the overlap between these fields? 
And how, how does an interdisciplinary approach bring value to the research of the center? Yeah, that's a great question. As I already mentioned, the previous off fellow was also an Old Testament PhD student. So there seems to be something to Old Testament students and uh, how they relate to bioethics. I don't know. <laughs> but I think there's actually great overlap, as I already mentioned. I think one big issue is this whole issue of protology, right? How is the world meant to be? And I think the Old Testament gives us a lot of that, especially when it comes to the doctrine of man. So anthropology is one of the things where it, it kind of seems like, right, that New Testament scholars and systematicians, they, it often feels like they are the ones who are doing all the work that matters in terms of doctrine, right? Like all the doctrines seem to be in the New Testament. Um, but when it comes to like the doctrine of man, it's really something that you find in the Old Testament more than in the New Testament. And this is, I think, where, where the overlap between Old Testament studies and bioethics really comes in. The Old Testament kind of gives us the vision for what it means like to live as a human being. And it has a lot of points of interaction with the experience we have in this world of medicine, of fallness, of illness, right? Then, then also it's just this, just this idea of just using the Bible, right, to, to navigate through life and how to do so well. I mean, there are a lot of different or wrong approaches you can use the Bible to navigate through life. And I think wrestling with issues of bioethics, which are so radically changing and, and uh, which come at a quick pace, basically... And then exploring what does it mean to read the Bible against this background. I, that, that, I think that is very illuminating for the life of the church. And there's something also pastors can relate to, right? They, they, they're not, they're usually not super well-versed in the details of moral philosophy, right? But they, they all had exegesis classes and they can relate to what it means to read the Bible with bioethics in mind, especially as they face these issues coming up in their churches. And I think one of the other things that I often found helpful was just that idea of, for me personally, training a biblical scholar to do something that's relevant to the church. <laughs> it sounds kind of awkward when I say it that way, but in, in biblical studies, the approach is usually very historical, right? You just talk about what the text meant 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But you really talk about what the text means today. And studying bioethics from this Old Testament perspective really helped me. And I think it might help other people who go down a similar track of adding bioethics to the pedigree see how the text actually speaks to us today. So I, I think these are ways these, these things can overlap and where the church can benefit from such an interdisciplinary approach. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's really helpful. So let me put this question to you a couple of different ways, and you can answer it however you want. What is it that you wish you had known before you started here, and or what is it you want to tell the next or fellow? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I wish I would have known is uh, the relevance of the matter that we're doing here at CBHD. So that is something that actually surprised me. At one point, I realized at one point, everyone needs to become a bioethicist in his life, at least for a short amount of time, right? You will face medical issues coming at you and will, you will need to deal with them. There's no way around it. You need to visit a doctor, right? It's just, it's unavoidable. And then just the questions that we live with in, this times, in these times, as I just already mentioned, euthanasia, but, but also other issues. It's just, it, it's so relevant to the life of the church, but it's a topic that is rarely ever talked about. That really struck me, even about myself, I mean, or exactly about myself, really. Yeah. Coming in, having had all this theological education, right? Coming into the CBHD and realizing, man, I just had no idea. Right? This is just something that really comes up in the life of people regularly. And you cannot avoid it, but 
there's almost no knowledge out there for how to deal with these problems. Um, so that's something I wish I would have known beforehand, just how utterly applicable it is. Um, that really is the second point, just the applicability to the Christian life. I mean, ethics is oftentimes just doctrine put into life, right? Really, that often what it feels like is ethicists are really the ones who tell us how to live our lives as a Christian. And for pastors, I think it's really enriching to know or have at least a, a basic knowledge of what bioethical matters are. But it's because they will have to stand besides their congregational members when they face issues such as suffering, right, and, and temptations that come with that, but also just, just navigating medical processes, right? So it's very applicable to Christian life. That's something I would have, wish I would have known as well. And then I think the third thing I wish I would have known is the depth of it and the interrelatedness. So bioethics sounds like it's just talking about medicine and just a few medical issues. But one thing I realized when I browsed through journals when I did my reading times, um, there's so much related to it, right? So many philosophical and theological issues that come with it. And so, so you can do bioethics from almost any angle. It feels like it's a field that's not necessarily restricted into one direction. It is, um, it is a very, it is an open ends. We can come at it from a lot of different angles, uh, like me from Old Testament studies, right? But there are so many, when we have the Academy of Fellows meeting, for instance, I'm always surprised by what different perspectives people bring. And so it, it's a very dynamic field and there's so much you can do with it. And because of that, it also goes very deep in terms of the knowledge you need to have in order to grasp either parts of the field or even get a superficial knowledge of the entire field. So these were things I, I loved that would have known before I came. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said that unlike other academic disciplines, bioethics sort of actively resists the tendency towards hyper-specialization. Yeah. That you, you have to kind of stay broad to stay in the field. Right. That's very true. So what have I not asked you about that you would like to share? <laughs> I think um, for people who are interested in bioethics from a theological perspective, uh, some of the things that I did personally in terms of my own research stuff at the center uh, could be interesting to talk about for a moment. Yeah. So I kind of had two research projects that I was working on continuously while being at the center. One thing was I was working on Genesis protology and, and what it means for living a Christian life. And I was specifically working on the issue of the good life. So this concept of happiness, right? What does it mean? What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to, to live a life that's good? And I explored problems of how other people have answered that questions and, and, and how it specifically relates to the issue of selective reproduction. So abortion, because abortion is often done because people are afraid that their children will not lead a good life, right? Or that they will not lead a good life because their children might have specific diseases or other impairments that, that cannot now be medically shown already way ahead of them being even born. And I was wrestling with the question of, from the perspective of Genesis 1 and 2, what does it mean to live a good life? Because I think Christians often have the tendency to glorify suffering, so they don't mm -hmm. really see the graveness of suffering that comes with having a having having an impairment having a disability mm -hmm. when i was when i was 19 I, I worked as a nurse in israel for a year and i was actually taking care of um, severely handicapped people for a year and i was often struck when i when i first started to read on christian responses to these types of things or to abortion that suffering is often handled very superficially that people don't really understand how bad it really is right so affirming that on the one hand, but also affirming that the life of someone who suffers nevertheless can be a good life, right? We don't we don't need to deny that. 
in the full sense because I think we have a lot of approaches that say, oh, people can still live a good life um, because, or they would say society is the problem, right? If we just, if we just get rid of, if just society adjusts to specific impairments, then people will live a good life. Or they will say, if you feel that you live a good life, if you think, if you experience happiness, then then you live a good life. But in the end, what, what, what really struck me was that I think the common or the public opinion really goes the other way. The fact that Iceland has managed to almost get rid of Down syndrome through abortion shows that people don't buy that. Right? A lot of secular eth ethical approaches to the good life. I, I don't think people buy that in the end. I think they thoroughly believe that if you have an impairment, you don't live a good life. Mm -hmm. And I think as Christians, we need a response to that. And then the other, the other project I was working on was um, on the art of dying. And I wanted to do something really hip and cool. <laughs> so Like a podcast? <laughs> right, like a podcast. <laughs> so what I worked on was I was interested in people who are terminally ill and they show the narrative. Like they make videos of their story and they put it out on YouTube. And how do they show the dying process? Because the, the, I was mostly interacting with two channels on YouTube and both of them died after having cancer very young both of them and they made hundreds of videos a digital journal basically of their journey with cancer and then ultimately death and um, what struck me was that public form of dying right people today die in hospitals um, they kind of die tucked away from society mm -hmm. but these people really put it out like they, they really showed the graveness of their illness experience and I was interested in does that relate to us to some degree like can we can we learn how to die well from such public accounts of death and what 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 do they emphasize what is important to them in the dying process what are kind of the the virtues and the vices so to say that they mm -hmm. that they work with that they kind of actively emphasize in their in their videos and also framing that from a christian perspective of what would have been a christian account of dying well and how does it relate to these videos mm -hmm. but this was the other thing i was working on quite a bit and um I think it really was hip and cool in the end to watch all these YouTube videos. <laughs> so it's almost like a day-by-day -day or week-by-week -week catalog, a video catalog of their whole experience of being sick and kind of the ups and downs of that. Yeah. It, Is that how I was working? So both of them produced videos that were highly edited. So I, I And they had hundreds and thousands of clicks. So I think at the end of their lives, they both lived of making these videos. I think that was kind of a, I think they really made money of it. So it's this also a problem. It's kind of yeah. So that's a that's a real complication, right? You you don't really know what is just a performance, right? Or, or that makes cur it curated almost, right? Yeah. What makes it that makes it difficult to evaluate it, but. So they would post almost every second or third day. Um, they would make a video and post it online. Now, one of them really try was able to keep that pace almost up until the last week of, of her life. The other one, um, as things got worse with his disease, um, he kind of stopped doing that. And then mm -hmm. you have much more videos where he's just like filming himself with his cell phone that are not really edited. It's just him talking into his cell phone camera, just giving an update of how he's like and how he feels like. And then if there was like a major problem, you would, you would see him not posting for several days, sometimes yeah. weeks, yeah. and then he would come back up and, and do summer videos. Um, so it's, it's, it, it varies from, from the, and I, I watch other videos, not as systematically as these two channels. It varies really from person to person on how they really journal this this um this story that they live through yeah and are there 
a couple of takeaways that you have from that, or is it something that you're still working on processing? So one of the th two takeaways that I, I think are important that became important for me was um, one of the one of the channels I was working on. What really struck me was um, his emphasis on research and answers. It's like these are like two terms that pop up. That just constantly repeats these terms as well as research and answers. We need to get the research. We need to work on getting the answers. Mm. So he really has this utter belief in that that science might snatch him from the fire. And if not him, then maybe his case will help others mm. to snatch them from the fire through science. And he's like in this, like really in these in his last weeks of life, you really it almost feels schizophrenic at one point. Sometimes you feel like he kind of realizes, oh, I'm going to die, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really going to die now. So I need to deal with approaching my own death. But then in the next video, he will be back and say, I'm still going to fight. Mm -hmm. I need to find the answer. I need to research this. If I can research this enough, I might still find something that will prolong my life or even cure my, my disease. Um, and just this, this, this desperate hope to find some answer that might overthrow everything that he has experienced these f past few months. I, I think that can be a grave danger for people not to prepare for death well. I think that, as I read on The Art of Dying, that, that often pops up in the literature, but seeing it that way mm -hmm. on YouTube really made me realize how grave it can really be. And the other thing that I think I learned from both of them in the dying process was, especially the other person that I studied, once she has realized that she had a terminal that she had a terminal illness and she prepared for death, she became really calm about it. Like it was something that, that mm. she made her peace with. And oftentimes when you watch Christians die, that's something you don't see, right? Um, especially Christians who die publicly. There's very often there's like this almost a similar expectation to this answers and research that, that God will snatch them from the fire, right? Mm -hmm. That God will still heal them in the very last moment. But this this woman I was watching the channel of, she really made a decision to kind of put her life in order as much as she could and also to just enjoy life till mm -hmm. the very last moment. And I, I think as Christians, for us, that's, that's redeemable, right? We can make that same decision. And that's something that really resonated with me. I, I think just her posture at the end of life, obviously... If you go through the whole channel and you see her, you see her kind of developing more and more um, tumors, right? Developing more and more, more and more disease in her body, and then she goes to the doctor, and the doctor tells her, like, "No, you have no, no, it has entered your brain. It's in your brain now." Mm. And she's basically just the next two or three videos. She's just completely struck down by it, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, but, 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 but then she'll get back up again, and she'll be able to enjoy life again and there was an inspiration for me if uh, how would i act if i if i face this in a situation would i just mm -hmm. go into this well, into this um, position of uh, being sad being depressed all the time or would i try to act like her and um and she wasn't even a christian right, right. so I, I think as christians we have even much more spiritual possibility to redeem these last days of life mm -hmm. and still taking in the pain as she did right and we go to the doctor and he tells us just gotten worse that we can also mourn that mm -hmm. yeah yeah well, that's just fascinating work so you mentioned already that you're moving to amsterdam can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing there sure so i'm gonna be professor of old testament studies at a seminary in the netherlands called Tyndale theological seminary it's a mission school so all the faculties are missionaries um, and what we do basically is we educate uh, mostly students from Africa and Asia, they come to Tyndale and we try to 
to give them the tools and the skills they need to go back to their home countries and minister effectively there. So we really, really try to raise leaders for global Christianity. And Amsterdam is really suited to do that just because of its central location, but also because it's such an international city. It's a very international feel. Yeah. And Tyndale has been doing it since the mid-80s. It was actually founded by Trinity professors mm. who went to Amsterdam. And I'm going to start teaching there this uh, coming February. And do you think that your work in bioethics will inform that, even if kind of indirectly? Yeah, I, I do think so. I, I Both my research projects have really I, had really, I had a lot of fun with them. So I think I would like to work on the doctrine of man in the Old Testament in the future. And I think I would also like to work on um, the Christian out of dying in the future, especially because me being from Germany and seeing the German literature on the matter, there's not much out there. Here, here in America, you now have quite a few books that are super helpful, like Ellen Verhey's book on the Christian out of dying, and then also um, uh, Rob Moll's book on the Christian out of dying would be two examples, but there's much more. There's just mm -hmm. really in English, you have a good amount of resources these days to kind of replicate this tradition that has died out right in the 19th century, 20th century, but now is being revived by a number of thinkers. We don't have anything like that in Germany at this point. So I think in the future, if I can, God willing, I would love to write on that and kind of not really being an original researcher as much as replicating tradition from America and bringing it to Germany, kind mm -hmm. of trying to function as an intermediary there between the two contexts. Yeah. Well, this is great. Thanks for sitting down with me. And um, it's been great working with you. And we wish you and your family all the best as you move on to this new phase. Thank you so much. It was a, it's a great time working at the center. I really enjoyed it. That was an interview with Mario Taffner, who served as the Robert D. Orr Fellow at CBHD in 2018 and 2019. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center, and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. All post-production for the Bioethics Podcast is done by CBHD Communications and Marketing Manager, Annalise Troll. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Interim Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. <laughs>